Come on now, that's good stuff. I can't believe I just said, come on now. Anyway, that's good. You know, it's, it's fun to be uh, in a smaller space doing church. You know, it's kind of fun, right? A lot more intimate setting, uh, and that's cool. It's good to see all your faces. I love preaching in the chapel for that very reason, uh, because, I mean, you're just like right here. I mean, if this front row was full, they wouldn't be in the six-foot uh, spitting distance. So, for me, by the way, you always want to sit at least six foot. That's dangerous, Norman. That's dangerous. You always want to sit back. So, um, I'm really glad to be with you guys. Just just really glad. It's good to be back together. Um, the last couple weeks, we're excited about what's going on in our worship center with the, with the remodeling of the lights. It's going to be really awesome to have those done. Uh, that's been a need for a long time. It, it really does even affect the way that we do services in there. Um, and so that's a really big deal. The fact we're able to pay cash for that, that's a really big deal too. So those are good things. Uh, it did displace us for two weeks in virtual. And, you know, the church is meant to be gathered. And uh, for those that aren't feeling safe or comfortable, we totally understand. That's, that's not even a big deal. Um, it's the fact that we weren't gathering at all, you know. And so, man, we didn't like doing that. Uh, as leaders, um, this is much better to be with you. So uh, let me say all that. Um, we are just overall greatly excited about this year of ministry, too. I mean, you know, so we have coming off two weeks of meeting virtual. Now we also have the beginning of 2021, the beginning of a new year. And we as leaders and really just fellow believers, we just couldn't be more excited about this year. I mean, we are just because we just, you know, it's not even about a vaccine. It's not even about things with the virus, although that is part of it, right? I mean, we're hoping that life will move on a little. But I think just there's a corner turned with even just ministry in the midst of this that is just really exciting about what God has for us as a body. And I think part of the excitement for me in that vein of things is because we're starting a study in First Timothy today, and we're going to get to that. We picked 1 Timothy because of its implications to local churches. That's why we picked it, is because we wanted to find something that we felt God was leading us to that was going to speak directly to local churches. Because in a time like this, what we need is we need an undergirding of God's word and his spirit to, to remind us of who we are together. Because it's been a really hard year. We've, we've been a scattered church. I mean, even if our hearts are united, right? I mean, we've been a scatter. And so we need something to just undergird us back. Even if people aren't in the room and all those things, that's, that's, that really is fine. It's the way it is. But this undergirding of God's word and his spirit to bring us together. So we're going to get to that. Um, before I do that, I also want to say thank you to our church for your faithfulness in giving. Um, I mentioned paying cash for the, for the lights. We replaced the children's building roof where we're going to be replacing the roof of the, old, the oldest section of our church, this hallway right outside these doors soon. And um, all that is able to be done. And not only that, the ministries of this church have all continued. And as there's needs that come up, we're able to meet those. And I think that, uh, as Rick has said and other people have said, that's a huge sign of your maturity as believers. Because what the scriptures teach us is that we give the first fruits, right, of what we have. And so if our, if our fruits go down, right, if we have less coming in, 
then our first fruits may go down. That's fine, but they don't stop, right? Our devotion to that continues, and that's been evident, and so thank you for that. Um, just a reminder to those who are joining us on Facebook, I'm sure they're pretty excited. There's a 9 o'clock Facebook streaming the music that they love in our classic service, so that's awesome. Just a reminder to those folks, you can text uh, 652-0607, or you can go to our website, and you can continue to give that way as well. So uh, it's good. It's good to be with you. Let me pray for us, pray for our church, and then we'll jump into the text. God, we thank you uh, for this time. It's good to be gathered. Uh, thank you for that. I know that there are lots of things going on in the families represented in this room and online this morning. I know that there's lots of um, even maybe even thoughts coming into the morning about um, different issues. Um, I know there's lots of uh, discord in our country right now um, over over many, many, many issues. And God, what we want to do this morning is we want to come before you in your presence and in your word and with people who we've committed to being with, and we want to hear from you. We want to hear from your word. We want to hear direction from you. We want you to help us know the kind of people you want us to be. You want, we want to hear you tell us the kind of church that you want us to be. And God, we, we lay ourselves at your feet. We lay everything that we find our own worth in. We lay every, every really dream of our future that we have. And we lay those things down because we want those to be built up in the ways that you would have them. And so, God, we just ask this morning um, to meet with you. And God, we, we know through your word you're already with us. What an amazing miracle that is in itself. You're already with us. And so we thank you for that. And we're humbled by that. And we pray that um, as we study First Timothy, you'd help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so First Timothy 1 through 7, and, uh, and we're going to get there. But first, I want to talk um, about the Sermon on the Mount. And you think, oh no, how are you going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount before you even get to the text? Well, uh, you probably have a little reason to be worried, first of all. Uh, <laughs> no, I won't spend long. I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful picture of what we're going to talk about in First Timothy, and so I want to start actually there. Um, and the part I want to talk about is a very, very, very well-known phrase that Jesus tells his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. And what he tells them is he tells them to be salt and light. Okay, and I'm not going to give a whole exposition on what salt is and what light is, but I want to start there because what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's telling his followers, what the new kingdom of God that he is bringing into existence is like. And he's telling them how he is wanting them to live. And in many cases, how he's calling his followers, which would become the church, is he's telling them what he wants them to do. It's very, very important. The Sermon on the Mount matters because it's such clear instruction for us on how to live. It's also clear instruction on who the church is because the people he's speaking to are the ones who make up the church. Therefore, what he's telling them to do and how he's calling them to be are the different characteristics of the church as well. And so when he says salt and light, and we've heard many sermons on this, I want to talk just for a second about light. The biblical image of light is that it represents truth. 
that it represents truth. Because what happens when you turn on a light? You see everything. It reveals, right? And so this is a simple part of a phrase we've heard before. But I want to start there because what Jesus is telling his followers is you should be, listen, the ones who reveal and illuminate the truth, the truth. Now, what he's telling them is not just about like moral truths, right? That is included in the Sermon on the Mount. He does talk about moral, you know, being people consistent with the character of God. So you have moral. But what he's also talking about is gospel truth. Now, gospel truth is the most important truth because in the gospel truth, you have every other shadow of truth stemming from that. Now, the gospel truth is what Jesus came to reveal. The gospel truth is why he was born a baby. The gospel truth is why he went to the cross. The gospel truth is why he was resurrected. All the things. The gospel truth is this. God loves all people. He desires to know them in a relationship. Each one of us in our own way have chosen to follow ourselves. Whether that's because we had a dream we chased or whether it's because we wanted to attain something that we thought we needed most. And in that conscious decision or subconscious decision, we had rejected God. But God, even in his love, sent his son to bring us back to him. Now, Jesus wants us to make sure the world knows that and that God's love was great enough for Jesus to pay the penalty for our disobedience and our sin so that we could be seen as justified, as acceptable to God. That's the first thing, right? Here's the second part, and this one has to do with 1 Timothy a little bit more directly. This is the second most beautiful part of it all. And that is that it's for anyone. It's for anyone. The gospel truth is for anyone. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter how you see them, no matter how much you think they deserve it, whether it's the most evil person you've ever dreamed of meeting in your whole life, whether it's someone that's on their deathbed seconds from death that have never given God a second thought, whether it's someone who has made fun of you your whole life for your Christian faith. It does not matter who they are, what they've done, what you think about them, how much they deserve. None none of that matters. The gospel truth is that the gospel is for everyone. And so when Jesus says, be salt and light, part of what he's saying is, Be light that reveals gospel truth to the world. And part of that gospel truth is that it's for all people. Now, let's go to 1 Timothy. 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and stand in honor of God's word as we normally do. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. So what we just read has to do with exactly what we just talked about on the Sermon on the Mount. See, what's happening in the church of Ephesus is that the church wasn't being the light. And the reason they weren't being the light is because they were putting stipulations on people that were outside the requirements that God puts on people. So what we just read talks about, if you look at verse 3, as I urge you into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you can command certain men. So let's just start there. So a little bit of background, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I really want to get to the teaching, but this is to help you understand the ways in which Scripture was written so that in your own study, right, some dots will connect. Paul planted the church in Ephesus. First Timothy is a letter written to Pastor Timothy to lead the church in a healthy way. They had become off track in some certain ways, and so he was instructing Timothy, who was a disciple of his, right? Paul, we know, led Timothy, invested in him, raised him up as a leader, sent him out. And what he's telling him is, hey, I was close to you. I was in Macedonia, and when I saw you, we, we hooked up for a little bit. When I saw you, I told you to go back and stay there because there were certain things happening that needed your leadership. Then this letter comes to 1 Timothy with the instructions of what needs to be corrected. We're not 100% sure if this letter was, was read in front of the church. You know, a lot of the pastoral epistles, you know, people will say it was read. And, or if this was a letter that, that was to Timothy and he read and he acted on. But Paul is addressing some, some pretty important things. And the first thing that he chooses to address is that he wanted Timothy to stay there so he could command certain men not to teach false doctrines uh, any longer. And then he goes on to say, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work. So here's what's happening. There's people in the church and they're teaching that are not teaching the gospel truth. The gospel truth, number one, God sent his son as a substitute. The gospel truth, number two, is that it's for all people. And they are jacking that up. <laughs> they are getting it wrong. And he says, you need to command them to stop teaching false doctrines. Doctrines simply are the deeper truths of our faith that are kind of the framework that we believe God's love is communicated to us through, right? So uh, a, a doctrine would just be grace. It's a label for something that is true about God and what he desires to bring about in us. Now, that's a very loose definition, but it works for the purpose of what we're talking about today. And so he tells them that they have doctrines that are false, and they're teaching them, and they're also devoting themselves to endless myths and genealogies. And the product of this is that they're promoting speculation. Now, what does that mean? Speculation, obviously we know what the word means, but the effect of that is that the church is being divided over things that don't matter. That's what he's saying. Hey, you are called to be the light of truth, but you're getting caught up in things that aren't truth, and those things that aren't truth are dividing the church and taking away from your gospel witness where you're at. And so you need to go in there and command those certain men to stop. So the thing about myths and endless genealogies, we're not 100% sure what those things were. This is of interest because when we look at what these things may have been, we can then maybe extrapolate out, okay, what, what is that like in our lives, right? How do we do this? 
So the, the, so the, the idea of myths, obviously, is something that's not true, right? That could have been a, a host of things. Maybe they were mixing some kind of mythological uh, religious system with Christianity, right? Maybe that was it. Uh, a lot of people think maybe that they were looking at uh, extra canonical gospels. In other words, like gospels that aren't in the Bible, Gospel of Thomas. And they were saying, hey, in order to have faith, you got to know the Gospel of Thomas too. you got to know that. Or the endless genealogies. Now this we can be a little more certain about because Paul writes about this in some of his other letters. But it's the idea that there were church leaders who were putting this stipulation of knowledge on people and saying, hey, in order to, to have faith in Christ, you need to know the genealogies of how he came about. Okay, have you ever read First Chronicles, anybody? Yeah, we read through it last year, right? You're like, I got to do what? I got to memorize what? Yeah, they were putting stipulations on like, hey, if you want to have faith, you need to know these things. And it was like really, really intricate things. Or um, it was different special knowledge about the genealogies, right? Like about certain people and, and why they were in there. And so Paul says, you need to go stop them because it's promoting speculations. Listen, rather than Christ's work, which is by faith. Now, I think that is a lot of where the meat of this passage is. Because why is Paul upset? Paul's upset because the gospel truth isn't being made clear in that community of faith. That's why he's upset. It's not promoting the work of God, which is by faith. So what is faith? Faith is simply the belief that what the Bible teaches us about God and his love for us and his sacrifice for us in Christ is all we need. The purest form of faith is that I have nothing. God has everything I need, and I will believe that he is sufficient to give me what I need. And so Paul says what's happening there is not promoting that faith. It's promoting this special knowledge. Now, he's developing two kind of contrasting realities, just even in that mindset, right? The first one is the church that does promote the work of faith. He, I mean, right, I mean, if you're going to say it's not doing this, which is taking away from this, then he's holding up two things here. I think for us, what we need to be thinking about even this morning is how can we make sure that we're a church that holds the gospel truth correctly? How can we be a church that hears the words of Jesus that says, be salt and light, light revealing the gospel truth, and not get distracted, caught up, or concerned about things that really aren't from God, but are from us? How is it that we can avoid putting stipulations on people where they feel like they have to do something other than just believe? How is it that we can fall into the positive side of what he's talking about here? So these stipulations, I, I, I think it's, it's good to think about um, their impact. And let's talk about those just for a second. So many times in our Christian faith, things that start out with the right heart become corrupt. And the reason they become corrupt is because we're human and we're not perfect. And we have desires that even if they start out with the root of good, they become corrupt because we begin to find our pride in those things. 
the knowledge aspect of what Paul brings up is a perfect example, and honestly, it's a biblical example from the whole New Testament, and I'll get into that in a minute. So what, what most likely happened in this case is that there were people who received Christ and who loved God and who were so grateful for the grace that was given to them. And out of their devotion for God, they began to find and look for and study all they could that they thought was in line with the gospel that they had received. Okay, so I think it, I mean, honestly, we don't know, but most likely, and I'll get to another example in the New Testament in a minute, and with that one I'm even more confident, but we don't know exactly the root of how this started, but I think there's a good chance, I think there's a point of application for us that we in our human nature, in our relationship with God, take something that in itself is not bad, like knowledge, and we corrupt it because it begins to become a source of pride in our hearts in a way that we think that we are worthy of God's love. So, so when they start reading these genealogies, it could have been as simple as this. I want to know the background of Jesus. Or I want to understand how the faithfulness of God is represented in bringing about the Messiah. That's a good thing. Right? Or like, I want to know why does it talk about Tamar and his genealogy? Like, what's that? You know, like, that's a good thing. That's a good question to ask. But what happens is, as they find, and, and honestly, let me just pause there for a minute and talk about knowledge for just a second. We, we learn nothing of God apart from the grace of his spirit revealing it to us. Never, ever, ever do we learn anything of God through our own abilities. Ever. God is so much higher than us. We are so much more low and sinful than him. We cannot see through the cloudy glass of sin that we have to see the holiness of God without him revealing himself through his spirit. So there's never any reason for us to think that we've arrived somewhere in our faith of our own merit. It's always by grace. And so what they begin to do is they look at these things that aren't inherently bad, then they begin to maybe understand some things, and we do this too, right? We, we know where this is going, and then they begin to think like, well, huh, I'm pretty good. I understand these things. These are, these are like deeper things of the faith, genealogies, right? Like the Gospel of Thomas or whatever. Well, you know, like, huh, a lot of other people don't understand these things, but I do. And then they become potentially well-respected because they are knowledgeable. They do have knowledge. And they begin to find themselves in leadership, right? And Paul is writing to Timothy about people who are leading, right? So they find themselves in leadership because people go, wow, man, so-and-so is pretty smart. Did you hear what he said about the genealogies? Did you, did you hear what he said about whatever? You know, like, wow. And so these people get promoted into positions of leadership. And then what happens is those things become a source of pride in their life. Now, this is where it takes a turn. It becomes a source of pride. What happens when something becomes a source of pride in your life? It also becomes a metric of judgment. That's what happens. So the moment that you begin to internalize something that inherently is not bad about your faith, but it's actually good like knowledge, right? Or like your prayer life, or like, you know, other good things about how you interact with God. The moment that that becomes a source of pride, and you begin to see that as a reason of your worthiness, that at the same time becomes a metric of judgment towards others. They are indistinguishable. 
If you have something in your life that you think makes you worthy of God's love, that at the same time creates a chasm that you think makes other people unworthy. Those two things are attached. And so that's exactly what happened. So then these people started saying, okay, well, if you don't know these things, then you can't, you can't walk with God. And they began to create stipulations. What I was talking about earlier as the other New Testament connection is the Pharisees. And some of you guys maybe had already thought this might be where I'm headed, but I think the most simplest examples, Matthew 23, it's an incredible chapter about Jesus saying, woe to the Pharisees. I mean, maybe you, you can read it later. It's a great chapter. But one of the things he talks about is he says, you basically tie burdens around people's necks and you won't lift a finger to help them. But the burdens he's talking about are these extra biblical commands. So there were over 600 commands the Pharisees or 600, 600 commands of the law that the Jewish people were to follow. Well, the Pharisees came in and tacked on a whole bunch more. Now listen, the reason, and these are called fence laws, by the way. The reason the Pharisees created fence laws is because their devotion for the law. Right? They were so serious about the holiness of God that they didn't want to break the commands of the law. So they said, we're going to create these other laws. They're fence laws, right? Like, we don't want to get so close to breaking it that we're not even going to do this. Well, over time, those extra biblical laws, the fence laws, became rules that they were enforcing as though they were God's law. And what did they do? It became a sense of pride to the Pharisees. Oh, hey, look how good we are. We don't break any of the commands. And at the same time, it became a source of judgment for other people. And what did Jesus do? He spent so much time trying to unravel that junk. Because that's junk. What Jesus did when he cleared the temple. Same thing. People are controlling who has access to God. What is Paul telling the church? The gospel truth is that Jesus died in our place and it's for everyone. And you're controlling who has access. You're putting stipulations and requirements. And listen, the last thing that, that we can do as a church is inaccurately apply the fact that Jesus died in our place and it's for all people. If we become a community of people that inadvertently or purposefully put stipulations on others for them to belong to the family of God and faith in Jesus or belong to our community, we are not acting as God wants us to. It's that simple. Knowledge is such a perfect example because that is one of the ways that we become prideful quickest. Right? Because if, if God is good, then more knowledge of God is better. And then over time, what started as a good, healthy seeking of our Savior becomes a source of pride. And so we have to watch this part of ourselves. Now, later in Matthew, uh, Jesus tells the Pharisees, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I think there's a connection between keeping the gospel truth intact in our lives, personally, and as a church, and our state of humility. Okay, so we're going to get, this is kind of the, the last part, so... Um, let me just make one more connection with the, with the passage here in verse 4, um, the end of it where it says, promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. 
that, that word, God's work, the original language, it really has a more of an idea of steward. And that's a really interesting point when you think about that, because what, the, what Paul is telling Timothy is, hey, the church in Ephesus is the steward of the gospel. And you're not being a good steward because the very core of the Christian faith is off. And so I think that's a challenging thought for us as we think of even Jesus' words, be salt and light. How do we steward the gospel in our personal life? We're salt and light. How do we steward the gospel as a church? We're salt and light, but for today's purpose, we're light. We reveal that Jesus died for all people, all people. All right, so let's get on to some application of this for us, uh, some more application, I guess, for us uh, this morning. So what can we do as a church? Um, I think thinking about this text, I, first off, it's not just about knowledge, right? I mean, we all understand that, that this is what they were dealing with. The stipulations that we can put on people are different, and it may not even be some, it, I think it can be communal, and I think it can also be individual, and I think the question that we asked earlier of whatever that you become, whatever it is that helps you feel like you're worthy of God's love is also the same metric of judgment that you put towards others. That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Okay, and, and, and you can ask yourself in the reverse, what is it about people, if I'm honest with myself, that I think makes them unworthy? That's, that's a challenging question. I mean, our hearts are corrupt. We're sinful. I mean, we don't love all people. Right? I mean, like, tr we have to try to love all people. But in our hearts, they're deceitful. So what is it that, that, what kind of person do you think is unworthy of God's love? We have to deal with that answer and get to the place where we say everyone is. And maybe it's been a little while since you've done a heart check on the answer to that question. Whatever the answer to that question is, then is the requirement you're putting on them. And so then as a church, we also say, well, is it knowledge? Does our church have a love for knowledge that's greater than the love for just the gospel truth? Are we putting stipulations on people to, to know stuff or to be uh, theologically wise more than just faith? I see the answer to that as being no, personally, but I think it's a danger. And I think at any point, if you as a church member feel like that's out of order, you need to come talk to your leaders, right? To me, to Pastor Rick. The, and the way that I think about this is, I think a challenging thought as it comes to all these things is um, what, uh, what brings us justification in our relationship with God is our faith. And that's really where the core truth of all this is. What justifies you, so in other words, the idea that you are sinful, God is holy, what is it that makes you acceptable to God? That's the same idea as justification. It's Jesus, right? So we don't do anything to deserve that. It literally is by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? It's for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, right? So you, n nothing of yourselves, lest anyone should boast, right? If there was anything about ourselves that made us acceptable to God, then that would be a reason to boast. That would be a reason to have pride in that. But the reality is, nothing about us does. And so we have nothing to boast in. What does Paul say? The only thing I have to boast in is the cross and him crucified, right? That's my only boast. 
Because the justification we have to be acceptable to God is faith. Nothing else. And so it's not, I mean, even just thinking about phrases, whatever those little moments of pride might be in your life, even the phrase, God cares more about your faith than your knowledge. How does that sit with you? God cares more about faith than what you've done. Like, you know, who your family is, like how much money you have, what you look like. I'm at, right, whatever the situation is. That's a challenging thought because that's the truth. That is the truth. It's faith. And so anyway, I think that I, I wanted, I wanted to, to share that. Um, so what are some things we can do? We've been talking a lot. Some of this is wrapped in, but it starts individually. So I think that the, one of the most amazing things about church is that it's a community of individuals that come together. I love that. I mean, it's like my favorite part of church. It's a group of individuals who are equally, you know, trying to seek God, who is completely other than us. We're doing it together. We're doing it imperfectly, but we're doing it together. You know, like, I love that part. And I, and I also love the idea that um, nowhere should be as unified as the church. And so that's another thing that Paul's getting at. Is he says it's creating, it's promoting speculation. What does the word speculation refer to? It refers to division, factions, camps, some sort of like people saying, well, you should do this. And they're saying, no, you should do this. And you should believe that. I mean, there's, there's disagreement going on there. Um, and disagreement, by the way, is a healthy thing in a church as long as it's resolved. And it's resolved by being addressed, which is what Paul's doing here. And so I love the idea that the idea of church is, yeah, we have a, we have a mission and a ministry collectively. We absolutely do. Love all people to Christ, help them on their journey with God each other, right? That's our mission collectively. You know how we do that? By individually committing to it. Right? I mean, we, we can't just come together and say like, okay, this is going to be a place of gospel truth. It's, it's Jesus who died in our place and it's for all people. And then do nothing about that in your personal life. And it doesn't work that way, right? Like the church has impact because we come together and say, as a group, we're committing to this. And as individuals, we're committing to this. And so holistically, this will get done because I'm committing to it. And I'm committing to helping you commit to it. And together, we're doing this. And so it starts individually. Search your heart. See what you are most proud of as it comes to your faith. As I mentioned, that typically might be the same thing you judge others for. We talked about the Pharisees. The second thing, or a part of starting individually, is don't disconnect from God's grace personally. Don't let your salvation become old news. Right? I mean, we, I've been a Christian for 25, 20, 25-ish years. Boy, gosh. Somebody, somebody's getting old up here. Right? I mean, we know the routine. And, and we would be not telling the truth if we said the routine makes it hard to stay connected devotionally at times. That's one of our struggles. And you know what? That's okay. Don't feel guilty about that, but, but realize it. Label it. Know it. Don't become disconnected from, from God's grace personally because that's when you'll drift. That is when you will drift. When you get disconnected from, from God personally, that's when you're going to drift. God measures your devotion to Him by the time you spend with Him. God measures your devotion with Him by the time you spend with Him. He doesn't measure it by the number of conversations 
you have with others about the gospel. He doesn't measure it by the books you read about him, how much you stand up for Christian causes. God measures your devotion by the time you spent with him. And listen, the greatest, the greatest get we got in Christianity is God himself. That's it. And his commitment to us. So not only do we get God himself for like this year or the next 10 years, we get God himself for all of eternity. And so what we do when we turn in our Christian lives into something other than God himself is we kind of just disrespect the gift of God himself. So it's, it really is about devotion to him being measured in time we spend with him. Um, I'm, I'm skipping around here. I talked a lot of, about this earlier in the message. So uh, the second thing maybe is we realize this is a community of faith. I talked about that a little bit. Charged to have one unified message of grace by faith. So we love all people well. And, and I want to talk about that just for a second. If, let me back up, since the gospel is for all people, you have a part to play in making that happen here. So since the gospel is for all people, regardless of their anything, no stipulations on that, nothing, not one, then you have a part to play in that mission being accomplished in this body. So what does that mean? Well, there's some really practical things that means. Number one, just very, 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 very simply, when you see someone that you don't know, you take the time to make them feel comfortable. Now, most often what you find when you talk to someone else is something like this. Hey, glad you're here today. I'm running out of time, but I love it. Hey, I'm glad you're here today. Um, have you come to Council Road for a long time? A lot of times people are like, yeah, 20 years. And you're like, okay, listen, sorry. I didn't know. Haven't met you before. My bad. But at the off chance... <laughs> And by the way, I say that jokingly because if you talk to enough people, you learn just to brush that off. Like, okay, I'm sorry. You know, like, I just wanted to make sure you were welcomed. But the reason I say that is I think the most simple connection to the gospel being for all people is the fact that you and I see personal responsibility when someone is in this building for them to know that the gospel is for all people. And listen, if we aren't willing to go and engage with them, they're not going to think it's for all people. They're going to think it's for someone who looks or talks or thinks or speaks like you or me. So if we aren't willing to do the simplest connections, then we can't really say that we believe it's for all people. So that's a little bit because I'm the group's pastor there, I think, in connections. But that's, I think, I think it's also true. Uh, we should speak about the gospel often, speak about how the grace of God is free, undeserved, unwarranted. We should be quick to talk about our own mistakes, right? Because what, what is vulnerability? It's the openness that sheds pride, right? Why is it important to spend time with God? Because when you spend time with God, you automatically are, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, really, you are held up in, 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 uh, in light of God's holiness, and when you are vulnerable with God, with others, the result of that is humility. Absolutely, it's humility. So be, be uh, free in your ability to, to talk about your mistakes and your faults with others, and that means to be in a group, right? Be in a group of people. Um, and then I'll just 
end with verse 5 and 6. Paul says the goal of this command is love, comes from pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Some have turned to meaningless talk. I love the conclusion here because this is, I think, what Paul's doing. And by the way, what we're doing in these couple weeks is awesome because you can listen to Michael's sermon on the same text on Facebook later if you want, which I'm totally going to. And uh, I, think, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see some of the different nuances of stuff we bring out uh, in it. I love the ending, and I think Michael's maybe thinking something different. He'll talk about something different on the ending, but I know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul is addressing this because what's going to happen when this is shared? People are going to think, oh, well, Paul's just mad that there's other leaders here. Paul's just jealous. He's not even here, and he's trying to tell us how to, how to do things. Like, he, he's not even here, and he's trying to tell us that we should and shouldn't talk about this. Who's Paul? Well, I would just say this. I think Paul's ending is to clear that up and say, no, listen, Paul, this command, it comes from a, a pure heart. Right? Like, I, I, got no, I got no dog in this fight except for the gospel. It comes from a good conscience. Listen, I'm not trying to accomplish anything for myself. I'm trying to defend what the church is supposed to be. And it comes from a pure faith that people would see Jesus. And they wouldn't get distracted by things that aren't requirements of God. God only requires faith. So for us moving forward, I, I think it's, it's great to ask ourselves and ask God to help us be a community that is the gospel truth, that Jesus died to take our place, that it's for all people. And if there's any misconception in our own hearts about that truth, would God reveal that and clear, and clear that up? And also... Would God show us how to, how to accomplish that as a church? One of the best things about our Christian faith is that God has given us each other to accomplish this mission. He's given us each other. And maybe at the beginning of 2021, after a really poopy 2020, what you need, Rick wouldn't say poopy, but I did. He wouldn't say it in public. I don't know what he said in private, but maybe that's what you need to hear is that God has given us to each other. And he's given us such an incredible message to share. And w- would we be people who, who just carry the light, right? Would we be stewards of that gospel? It starts individually. It's manifested in this community. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this time and for your word. I pray that through all those words, you would speak truth and clear and clarity into people's lives and hearts. God, overall, I hope we walk away with just a a great appreciation for your grace. For the fact that you do not require anything for someone to come to you except for faith. And if you did, none of us would be a part of your family. And so I pray that that would ring true in our hearts and in our lives and the way we treat others, speak to others, the way that we engage with this church as members. In Jesus' name, amen.